Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from SeedCamp. Uh, I'm here in sunny Las Vegas with Scott Harrison, founder of Charity Water. And one of the things that uh, we'd love to hear are stories of how uh, history has shaped who people are today. And I was having a chat with Scott recently about uh, the background that led to uh, some of the changes and the origins and, and it had to come with a personal tragedy. So maybe, maybe Scott, we can, we can kick things off there. Sure, um, it's great to talk to you. Um, uh, yeah, so when I was four years old, uh, my mom got really sick. Uh, I was an only child, moved from uh, Philadelphia to uh, kind of out to the suburbs and into a house that had a carbon monoxide gas leak. And you know, this is years ago before any of the detectors uh, were invented or prevalent. So on New Year's Day, my mom uh, passed out unconscious on the bedroom floor. And after a long series of tests, uh, the doctors found these massive amounts of carbon monoxide in her blood. So she basically became irreparably ill. Uh, the carbon monoxide hadn't killed her, but her immune system and her body's ability to fight off anything chemical was gone. So she lived in um, isolation in a, a tile room covered with tin foil. Uh, she wore charcoal masks. She was connected to oxygen. And I, I really spent my childhood kind of in a caregiver role. Um, only child uh, family planning stopped after the accident. And, uh, you know, grew up in a very conservative Christian family as well. You know, my parents decided not to sue the gas company for negligence. They didn't want to be involved in a bitter lawsuit. So uh, at 18, um, I, like so many cliches, just utterly rebelled. Uh, I grew my hair down to my shoulders. I moved to New York City and, you know, wanted to pursue a life of rock and roll. So I joined a band that immediately kind of, kind broke music. up. Uh, we were like alternative. We were kind of a, uh, a cross between Pearl Jam, Live, and the Counting Crows. What, I played the piano. What year was this? Um, oh gosh, this is 20 years ago. So, uh, yeah, 1995 or so. So, you know, I, I moved to the city. The band immediately breaks up because we all hated each other. Um, but I learned that the people on the other side of the business were the ones making all the money. It was the promoters that were making the money. So at 19, um, I became a club promoter. And I wanted to be, you know, the, the number one club promoter in New York City. And I spent the next decade really climbing the social ladder um, of New York City nightlife. Um, got pretty close to the top. I'd say I was top eight um, at 28 years old. And, you know, I was one the guy on the, the inside of the one-way glass deciding, you know, who came out as 500 people would line up outside the velvet rope. And... It was a very uh, glamorous looking life, you know, fast curl, fast girls and fast cars and, um, you know, we would, we would fly around to Fashion Week in Milan and Paris and um, at 28, you know, I, I had all the things that I thought I wanted and I um, was just deeply miserable. Um, you'd asked about school earlier, you know, I'd, I'd gone part time to New York University just to keep my parents happy because they'd saved the money and, you know, I got C's and I think a... A degree in communications just because I didn't have to go to school to get that degree um, so I was really you know I guess an entrepreneur but in almost the most decadent sense um, at 28 I was in Punta del Esta in Uruguay on kind of the perfect vacation you know I had the BMW and the girlfriend on the cover of magazines and I had the Rolex and the Labrador Retriever and the grand piano in my apartment and all these things I thought were supposed to make me happy and I realized I was just become the worst person that I knew. I was spiritually bankrupt, I was morally bankrupt, I was emotionally bankrupt. And uh, I really began to kind of re-explore a very lost faith as a kid um, and became interested in service, in service to the poor. Something I hadn't done for 10 years. 
And I'd come across a verse in the Bible that said, true religion is to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep from being polluted by the world. And like, I was 0 for 2. <laughs> I literally polluted the world for the last 10 years, getting as many people drunk and wasted as possible. And I had done nothing to serve others. So after um, a couple months of soul searching, um, made a radical life change, sold all of my possessions, and I started applying to the world's famous humanitarian organizations, um, hoping to do one year of volunteer humanitarian service. Now, maybe this doesn't come as a surprise to you, but uh, I was denied by every single organization that I'd applied to as a volunteer because I was a nightclub promoter. And uh, I was really felt kind of stuck. You know, here I've, I've sold my things, I'm ready to go and serve the poor, and no one will take me. Um, finally, one organization said if I paid them $500 a month, I could volunteer with them. And I had to go to a country called Liberia right after a 14-year uh, brutal civil war had ended. So I said yes. And a couple months later, uh, I went to uh, Monrovia, Liberia uh, to start on this humanitarian mission. Wow. That's like insane. Um and, and it's short-sighted from these charities because, I mean, who else is going to be able to fundraise and, and do the great sure. sort of evangelism that uh, club promoters? So but on paper, right? You know, paper, here's a guy yeah. that gets a thousand people drunk at night, and they were the serious humanitarians helping people in Darfur. And so, yeah, in, in some ways I was uniquely qualified to raise awareness or, you know, to help yeah. kind of bring a movement to this. Um, but they didn't see it. So I had actually... Um, the job I took with Mercy Chips, and it's, it's funny to call it a job because I had to pay them to be yeah. there, Reverse but was, um, was of photojournalist. So I kind of dusted off that NYU degree in communications and said, look, I've got 15,000 people on my nightclub list. You know, I've been just telling them a bad story <laughs> for yeah. 10 years. Um, why don't I tell the stories of the amazing humanitarian work that I'm going to be seeing in, in Liberia? Um, so that was really cool, being able to kind of almost instantly redeem, you know, the so decade of contacts. The moment, so I mean, this is, a, I guess, a, a, a tricky question you might have been asking yourself. Maybe you didn't care, but there is a certain um, expectation of what's inbound on that list from your history. Yeah, so and my list got smaller, Carlos. <laughs> Let's cut to the chase. Some people are like, dude, why the heck are you sending us pictures of, you know, facial tumors? From Liberia, like we were, you know, we, we want to come to the Prada party. <laughs> um, so so that was there was definitely kind of um, a, a separation. The amazing thing though was for every person that was leaving the list, there was someone who was deeply moved with compassion and empathy, and said, "I had no idea that people were living like this." Um, I remember once um, getting an email from someone said, "I'm sitting here at my desk at Chanel, and I'm just in tears. I can't go through my day because of you know the story that I just read." coming from Liberia. So some people started giving money and some people actually uh, later volunteered with the organization. So, um, how, how long did that take <clears throat> from the moment where you, you could tell that your your role actually tangibly affected the It was pretty process. instant. I mean, you know, day one, you know, I hit the ground and, you know, my actually my third day on the mission, just to give you a sense of what this was like, I was living on a huge 550 foot hospital ship with 350 doctors and surgeons um, and crew. And everybody would basically give up their vacation time to serve the poor um, and provide you know, high quality access to medical care to people who couldn't afford it. So um, my third day there, I remember it was 5.30 in the morning, I grabbed my two Nikon cameras, jump in a Land Rover, and we roll up to the football arena that the government has given us. 
And we had flyered the country looking for patients in the months before you know, this day. And I was just so excited to see, like, would anybody come? You know, like, were we going to actually be able to help anyone? And I knew that we had 1,500 surgery slots that we could offer. And when we turned the corner and rolled up to the stadium, there were over 5,000 people wow. sitting outside. So I remember just weeping. I remember just uncontrollably, um, you know, being overcome with the sadness that, you know, over 3,000 people who had come with hope, uh, many of them had actually walked over a month just in the hope of seeing a doctor, um, would just be sent home simply because we didn't have enough doctors. We didn't have enough capacity. So it was it was a pretty emotional experience, and I was seeing um, people, you know, with with flesh eating disease, with six pound tumors, cleft lips, cleft palates, um, people who had been burned horribly during the war um, by rebels, you know, missing yeah. faces and um, arms fused together. Yeah. So it was a really really intense um, experience. At the same time, we were be able to help these people. So I really was able to focus on you know the fifteen hundred people that we were able to to directly help. So this journey sort of unlocked the part within you of like actually service service um, uh, mission in a way like it was your personal mission sure. around service and and how did that evolve? I mean obviously you know you you moved to to where you are today, but how did that transition go from there? What was the next the next phase? Well, actually, um, my year was finished, and I signed up for another year. Um, I, I just didn't want to leave. I wanted. Did they to, make you pay this time? Um, I think they did. They, I think no, they gave me a discount. discount. I think they might have given me a little discount, <laughs> um, or maybe the last six months was free or something. Because I I was raising a bunch of awareness and money for them. Hmm. Um, you know, um, I on the second tour, I started learning about water. And I was uh, going, I spent more time in the rural villages, and I saw people drinking from swamps for the first time in my life. I saw children drinking from water that I would never let my dog drink um, in a million years. Mm. And, you know, that was kind of the link. Here there's, you know, 5,000 people standing up outside a stadium waiting to see our doctors, um, many of them ill, and half of the country is drinking from its swamps and its ponds and rivers. You know, it doesn't have clean water to drink. So... That was a really important step for me on that second tour of duty, that second year, to make the link between so much of the disease that we were seeing and the lack of access to clean water. Um, so I came back to New York at 30 years old. Um, so this was 28 to 30 on the ship. And, you know, I should say that I've give, I gave up all my vices in one go. Um, I had I, I lived a very polluted life. I mean, I was a gambler. I was, how, how did you... I mean, just... I would people. say God. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I Faith was a big part of... Uh, of just trying to kind of you know give things over uh, to God, but I was a gambler. I smoked two packs of cigarettes. I had a coke problem. I had an ecstasy problem. Mm. I had a pornography problem. I had a strip club problem. I mean, I was like the, the worst, mm. most contaminated guy. So I just quit everything um, the night before I got up the gangway of the ship, and um, and that was it. And you know, it I feel like it almost allowed me to step into this new life or this new chapter of life. So I came back after the two years, and of all the stuff that I'd seen. The crazy medical conditions. Um, I mean, I spent time in a leprosy colony, and I just seen some really unthinkable things um, over that two-year period. Uh, I just couldn't get the water issue. You know, it, like it stuck with me. I couldn't get the fact that you know we lived in this world where, you know, um, you know, you're sitting here interviewing me with a microphone and a, you know, seven hundred dollar phone, and kids are dying drinking. Um, bad water from swamps mm. of diarrhea. Um, you know, that was personal to me because I sold $10 bottles of water in our clubs. <laughs> you know, and yeah. and uh, I learned that 750 million people around the world didn't have the most basic 
need met. Uh, yeah. Something I'd taken for granted my whole life, and so that's really that was kind of the link from um, you know from service, uh, serving mercy ships for two years, uh, being around doctors, and then saying, look, um, the bigger issue here mm. is kind of the question behind the question. You know, if people don't even have clean water, you know, how can we ever expect them to be healthy? Mm. How can we ever expect them to to live productive mm. um, lives? So when you started to tackle that idea, because I mean, you know, many founders that are, are starting companies have this vision that's probably 10 times bigger than, than yeah. the first step they need to take. And in your case, you're dealing with a resource that increasingly is being called like the next yeah. uh, battle. Uh, it's the next oil. Uh, and that's why you see a lot of, uh, of, of people buying land uh, and companies buying land that, that has fresh water. How did you decide that that was... That was that was going to be the first sort of entry point, and and what was that first? What was your MVP, so to speak? Well, it's interesting. I was running around telling everybody that we were going to help you know <clears throat> a billion people get clean water. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was I really did kind of begin at the end um, with this vision of a day when every man, every woman, every child has clean water to drink, um, like the rest of us. Yeah, you know, who were born um, you know into lower or middle class doesn't matter. Um, you know, America has a hundred percent water coverage. Yeah. You know, in some of these countries, had twenty-two percent water coverage. Mm. So, really, did you know go around saying we're gonna? F I mean, I don't know how long it's gonna take. It's not gonna be easy. I don't know what the solutions are gonna look like. But we, you know, we want to fight until everybody has access to clean water. Um, where we started was uh, was drilling wells. You know, one of the most common ways to help uh, rural communities is to drill a couple hundred feet underneath the ground and, and this is in land that they already owned yeah or so, you know so or common lands so uh, version one lands. of your product was really a drilling operation well it was finding local partners so, so let me just talk about the model a little bit this gets a little more complicated because the mission was going to be to help people get clean water but my vision was to reinvent the entire charity space reinvent the way people thought about charity the way they uh, their whole relationship with giving um, as I had come back from this trip I started talking to my friends about giving and I realized they were not giving to charity they did not trust charities they weren't giving to their parents or their grandparents charities and some of them were just selfish but I realized there was a huge lack of trust um, with the charitable sector and, and I would hear this phrase the black hole you know, time and time again. Charities are just a black hole. I, I don't know where my money goes. I don't know how much it will actually reach the people. So I thought if I was actually going to solve a problem as big as the water crisis or make a dent in it, I would need a completely new business model um, to attract, you know, people my age and younger and, and actually get them to care and to give. So I had three ideas at the time. Um, one was you have to solve the money problem. So I said, well, what if I could create a business model where a uh, hundred percent of the public's money without exception every single time would go directly to the field there would be no overhead mm. and somehow I would make overhead cool I would go and get you know entrepreneurs or board members or private companies to fund the running costs of the organization so every single penny could go so I made that kind of bold statement no idea how we would back it up um, and said you know we're gonna be so crazy about the integrity of the hundred percent we will pay back credit card fees so if you know you did a ten thousand dollar well, and I actually got ninety six hundred after Amex took their cut, we would separately raise money we didn't even get from your gift and send all intended ten thousand to the field. So that was idea number one: uh, send a hundred percent of the public's money to the field. Idea number two was um, use this exciting time and new technology to prove what the money was doing, just to prove impact. And this stuff sounds so simple, but it's amazing that it just wasn't happening. 
Um, so we said, look, we're going to be funding a variety of different water projects in many countries around the world. Um, Google Maps has, and, and Google Earth, has given us this free place to put all of our information transparently and make it available to the public. So we said, we are never going to fund a water project unless we prove it to the public. So if we have 10,000 water projects out there, you, with a $100 GPS device and two AA batteries, could go visit 10,000 of them. We've made all that public. So that was idea number two. Um, idea number three uh, was really to work through local partners. And instead of you know, sending Westerners, um, you know, overpaid Westerners, to Africa or to India to go and drill wells, uh, let's go and find the local organizations who had the expertise, who had the cultural sensitivity, who understood about sustainability, but were terrible at raising awareness or money. So let's actually fund them and grow them. So instead of me flying the charity water flag in 24 countries, let me go and find 24 amazing organizations and grow them through partnership. Um, so that was really the business model. Give away 100%, publicly prove using technology, um, what we're doing with the money, and then three, you know, work in a culturally sustainable context through the locals, um, and don't send over people, you know, overpaid people. So mm -hmm. we just started with that um, how much eight that, years ago. I mean, that, that's when you say it, it just rattles off your tongue. And it sounds really great, and and maybe it's it's oversimplifying the process that you went through in coming up with that model because it, you know, it, it seems to be something that obviously could have. Fail. Any one of those oh, it fail. almost failed. Oh, I have stories of you know almost blowing the thing up, running out of money for the overhead side. Oh. Um, I mean, that was really the biggest challenge. I mean, if you think about it, and it's funny, I tell nonprofit founders now not to adopt the hundred percent model. I yeah. mean, it's I feel like we're you know we're one in a thousand that made it work, yeah. and it was unique to the problem I was trying to solve at the time, which was reaching a huge demographic that didn't trust charities because of the money problems. Um, I think a lot has changed in in eight years, and I think some of the younger charities are just more prone towards transparency. But I'll give you an example. A year and a half in, the 100% model is working so well that I've raised millions of dollars for the water projects. We're proving them all. People love this. I mean, getting to see photos and GPS of your family's well, very powerful. Yeah. Seeing the faces of the people that you actually serve. Yeah. However, I've got a few weeks left in the payroll account. So it's interesting. Um, friends uh, and advisors were telling me to borrow the money for the water projects to keep the organization going. And I remember being, you know, they said, look, Charity Water is such a great thing, you can't shut down this organization over just a principle. Yeah. Money's fungible, you know, borrow and you'll pay it back later. Yeah. And I remember being, you know, so offended by that. You know, if we took a penny from the public's uh, yeah. money for water projects, we would compromise everything. I yeah. mean, we might as well go home. So um, I was actually planning on shutting the organization down, sending all the money for water projects out proving it yeah. and then doing a reboot. At that moment, I met um, a, a British entrepreneur named Michael Birch um, and uh, we had a two hour meeting and I remember just being really honest with him. I also remember thinking that he hated me um, and I learned later, you know, that's just because no, he Michael. was British. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's Michael. Too, yeah. um, and, and, you know, I, I just said, look, you know, this is working and he said, you know, I don't give to charities. I don't trust charities. And I'm like, Exactly. Yeah. Like this is, you know, you are the exact kind of person for by which I, I started an organization like yeah. this. So um, he left the meeting, and you know, I remember I was really frustrated at this point. I um, I was praying with very little faith. I'm really thinking about winding the org down because my business model didn't work. Yeah. And Michael emails me two days later. He said I wired a million dollars into that bank account. So we went from a few weeks of funding to 13 months, and he said I love this model. 
Um, you just need more time. So that was, you know, really the closest to death. Um, with that extra time, um, we basically found a hundred and one other people uh, like Michael. Um, and Charity Water Today is funded by, you know, many of the VCs, uh, many of the top entrepreneurs, um, the founders of Twi Twitter and Facebook and Spotify and um, people from Google and um, just a, an amazing group of tech entrepreneurs have kind of joined Michael and said, um, we love this model. We realize that it makes this powerful 100% promise possible. So, um, you know, that was just kind of one, you know, we stuck by our principles. We were really, um, we were really fortunate to have someone like Michael, um, you know, kind of come in and, and, and fund us at that time. Yeah. But, you know, it could have gone the other way. How do you, I mean, a lot of founders probably find themselves in that situation where they're questioning either a decision that they've made, for example, um, not necessarily in, in, in just the world of charities, but sometimes in terms of other physical goods, there's transparency marketing, uh, where you're, you're sharing maybe the costs to, to your customers. And there's that fear that, you know, you're effectively um, probably going to put yourself in a position where you can't continue with the, the, the business that you desired. How, what gave you strength? What, what was it, the thing that kept you going uh, knowing that maybe maybe this is crazy, maybe, maybe this was a crazy idea. What what kept you going in that? I mean, I think there's something about you know the entire mission has. There's no personal gain in it. I mean, you know, people have tried to hire me to run Silicon Valley companies. I'm clearly not in it for the money. Um, so, like, the entire mission was in service of others. So, everything we did was to get the poorest people on the planet access to life. You know, to the most basic need, mm. and also to encourage um, people to be generous and to inspire compassion and empathy. So I think at the core, <clears throat> I just believe what we were doing was so good. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of teetered back and forth between, well, you know, I have faith and I don't have faith. You know, there, I'll be transparent about that. I mean, it was, it was up and down. You know, the whole thing's over and, wow, what a stupid model. And, oh my gosh, this is the greatest model ever. And, you know, we're going to find 20 Michaels. Yeah. No, that's great. And, you know, I, I think it'd be great to have you share some of the successes and the numbers, anything that you, yeah. you want to share with the audience in terms of the t lives touched and anything sure. like that. So we scaled, we scaled it like crazy. We grew 90% year over year for the first five years. Um, we've now, we've now raised uh, close to $200 million um, from, uh, getting almost a million people uh, involved. Uh, you know, that's great for us. The way that we really keep score is lives. So we've got about 5.2 million people uh, access to clean water in 24 countries. Last year, um, just to put that in perspective, um, as I was trying to inspire my staff at the end of the year, uh, we helped 2,700 people every day of the year get clean water. So one person every 30 seconds gets clean water around the world because of charity water. So. You know, if we talk for 30 minutes, um, there'll be 60 strangers that will get clean water just in a half hour that we're giving the talk. So that's really what, that's what we live for. And, uh, you know, the, I think what's exciting about this is it's really been through grassroots. I mean, we have, you know, some major donors. I mean, uh, Michael Birch, for example, has given $10 million over the last seven years. They've been, you know, deeply involved and mm. have been with us to four or five countries and, um, I just had um, the whole family is five and six year old kid um, in uh, in Ethiopia two weeks ago. So um, it's been kind of uh, major donors, people who are able to really fund the staff, and then it's been six year olds. We've got a 
uh, a girl, Maddie, in Vancouver right now selling lemonade. She did 12 lemonade stands. Uh, one of her lemonade stands she did in the rain. And uh, at her last lemonade stand, she convinced a local band to play to attract uh, you know, lemonade buyers. And she sold $5,346 of lemonade. Oh. So the charity wire community, you know, is global. It's incredibly diverse. We've had eighty-nine-year-olds get involved. Um, one of the um, one of the ideas I think that's resonated through the tech community is this idea of um, asking people to pledge their birthday. So kind of stumbled on this uh, on our first center. So I actually, I kicked charity water off in a nightclub. Uh, so there's a little bit of uh, you know bittersweet irony there. Yeah. Um, day one was my thirty-first birthday. And I got 700 friends to turn up in a club. I gave them all open bar, and I charged them 20 bucks at the door. And instead of pocketing the 15 grand, I took the money to um, Ethiopia, uh, to Uganda, and then we proved all the wells to the 700 people, <coughs> sending them the photos and the GPS. So on our one-year anniversary, I'm like, and I don't want to go back and do another club party. What if I donated my birthday, told everybody to stay home, and only... Um, and, and just ask for my age in dollars. I thought that would be sticky. <coughs> $32 for my 32nd birthday. So to my surprise, just all, um, all by email, I wound up raising 59 grand, almost all of it, $32 at a time. I just kind of said, wow, this is a big idea. People don't need any more crap. You know, I don't need a handbag or a wallet. You know, there's 750 million people without drinking water. Yeah. So what if we all were able to donate our birthdays and instead of throwing ourselves big parties or, you know, accepting gifts, we got our friends and family to contribute our Asian dollars. <coughs> so this idea has just taken off um, and it's spread around the world. And um, some people said, look, I, you know, I can't even wait until my birthday. I need to get involved right now. And we've had skydivers and mountain climbers and people walk across America and um, swim um, so many kind of exceptional campaigns. Mm. So about 38,000 people have raised $40 million <coughs> just through that, through birthdays and campaigns. Yeah. So with a company that's growing as fast as, as yours, what has been sort of the major uh, learning in terms of scaling a company that, that you, you've had? Any mistakes that, that yeah. you, you made? Um, biggest mistake, not uh, investing enough in CRM. <laughs> you know, I mean, there was a point where we had half a million donors on Excel spreadsheets and just didn't really know enough about our community. So <clears throat> I'm not naturally inclined to process, and I just didn't put enough of that kind of, um, you know, in it, I, I didn't spend enough time on process mm. and systems and infrastructure. So that's just, you know, it's much harder going and doing data migration and clean up on, you know, half a million records than 5,000 records. So did I wish we'd started that earlier. No, we just started building the muscle internally uh, mm. a few years ago. But you know, I, I wish I had done that from day one. Mm. And any any sort of hiring challenges that you had? Well, you know, in some ways, hiring is very difficult for us because um, there's no equity to give. So if you're looking to really make money, Cherry Water is not the place for you. You know, we can pay people, um, you know, enough to you know, to live comfortably in, in in New York, and and we have good healthcare and benefits. But there's there's no equity. There's no um, promise of you know the big exit. Or, or any stock to give. Um, so what we do have is purpose, right? You know, you're, you're working every day um, to improve the lives of the poorest people on the planet, you know, through something that is just such, makes such common sense. It's almost an inarguable good. 
So uh, it, it's been both challenging to hire people, but we also have some of the most committed, smart, amazingly talented people. And you know, we've we've hired people out of Google, out of Twitter, out of Zynga. Um, you know, just just amazing uh, at a medium. You know, people who, you know, left some of these companies and said, you know, I I don't need to make the money, or you know, I I, I want my work to matter. Mm. Okay, and so I spend a lot of my time on that is really recruiting. And and so to to wrap things up, you know, we usually say, uh, what would you like to shamelessly plug? Mm. But maybe another way of phrasing the question would be like, what what could the listeners do for you? What what could they? How could they help you? If if, if you could. If you could get all the people who listen to this to do something on your behalf, what would it be? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think learn a little more about the organization. Um, you know, we've, we have a pretty good website. We've got a bunch of videos. And it's just such an amazing issue. You know, water brings health and education. Um, I think the way that we're doing it and, and some of this radical transparency, you know, could be relevant for some of your listeners' businesses. You know, for instance, uh, we crowdsource drilling rigs and we mounted GPS units to our drilling rigs in Ethiopia and they tweet their location as they drill. You know, just trying to connect 12,000 people who gave a little bit of money for a $1.2 million drilling rig um, to this thing in real time. Um, right now we're working on a really cool uh, project where uh, we're building a remote sensor. So our, our wells, we now have 16,000 water projects um, wow. around the world. And if they're all working, then they'll be serving 5.2 million people. If 10% are done, or, or not working, right? that means that 520,000 people would be drinking from their swamp again. So this is probably the biggest thing that we're trying to tackle right now through through technology, is um, is installing sensors so they'll know that we'll know that these projects are actually serving communities. So I think you know there might just be some lessons in in charity water for for other people's businesses. On a personal level, um, we've had a lot of founders recently uh, pledging equity, and they've said, "Look, I can't write a big check, um, but I could give you know a couple percent of, of my mm -hmm. company and and feel like I'm connected now, yeah. um, feel like I'm doing something now, even though, you know, almost feel like my work or, you know, the the huge payoff that I'm working towards, which a lot of people are, you know, might actually." have a benefit for others yeah. um, I know that's something we've been working on with Founders Forum actually out of London and you know yeah. we've had 25-30 entrepreneurs um, pledge equity um, and then the birthday thing is just a lot of fun I mean Jack Dorsey did three birthdays raised $200,000 uh, Angela Arons who's now over at Apple um, sent out one email for her birthday and raised $101,000 um, so we've just seen that as a simple way um, for, for people just to kind of spread awareness of the issue if they care about it mm. um, and, uh, and it just works and uh, we've even got a little virality going on right now with uh, with the product. Excellent. Well, guys, uh, thanks for listening. And Scott, thanks again for your time. And until uh, next time. Cool. Thanks for having me.